0: Hey everybody, this is Dean. Welcome to the Content Management Bible Podcast. Today we are talking about Chapter 5. And the title of Chapter 5, a very interpretive title, the title is, But What is Content Really? And in this, Bob is going to be finishing up his section talking about the nature of content. And we're going to be talking about some aspects of how content fits into context Context, as Bob defines it, is presentation, is content presented to some kind of user or visitor, whereas content is a pure concept. Context is all the stuff that surrounds your content as it gets delivered. And so that's what we're going to be talking about in this section. Um, I'll, I'll read Bob's opening paragraph in the introduction here. Bob writes, I've spoken with any number of people who believe that the basic agenda for content management, as I lay out in this book, is flawed. You can't, they often say, separate content from its context without destroying its meaning. Furthermore, they contend, You can't just create information in little chunks, move it all around, and still expect it to communicate in the way the author intends it to! Exclamation point! In addition, they say, The job of the author is never to create neutral information that can serve anyone at any time. Authors need to know with whom they're communicating and why. Finally, they contend, Each kind of publication is different and each demands its very own very different approach to content. How can you possibly create a content chunk that can work just as well in any publication? Uh, Those are important questions, so let's get into it. Hey, Bob starts off with a section called Content, Context, and Meaning. And what he's talking about is the separation of content from context and then how that relates to its meaning or how that forms its meaning. Content, of course, is is the thing we're managing. Context is all the surrounding stuff in which the content lives. One of the great cliches of content management is that you need to separate your content from your presentation. Well, you can replace presentation with context. The idea is that we're going to separate our content from our context. And if we look at like a web page that has a news release on it well the content on that web page would be the text of the title and the text of the body and what we want to do is we want to separate it from all of the layout information and presentation information which is really the context how it's being presented at that moment and so that's what this section is talking about bob writes content context and meaning are tightly intertwined still you can separate content and context and then automatically mix and match them later content and its context so intertwine, however, that you could just as well call content management context management. As you look at a web page, your eyes continually travel between the core content of a page and the other information that surrounds it. The surrounding items consist of stuff such as banners, footers, navigation bars, and background colors. The point of good design is to create a unified experience. The content and its surroundings need to blend so cleanly that you never find a reason to differentiate between them. However, the surroundings deepen the meaning of the core content by putting it in the context of the whole site. Uh, So there, what he's talking about is is we separate our content from our context, and then we kind of combine them to create uh, greater meaning. He continues here, without the surroundings, the content is seriously less meaningful. On the other hand, the content isn't meaningless without the surroundings. Rather, the content could still carry some significant chunk of meaning to a particular type of person. One small news clip, for example, taken apart from the complex page in which it's embedded, can still convey some amount of meaning to the reader. A good page adds context and does meaning to content. Um, He continues lower. Um, He talks about the concept of writing this book, and he talks about building a CMS. And I'm not sure if he actually means that literally, like he built a CMS to hold this book. Um, I've written four books now, and I can tell you when I wrote the books, I, I did kind of invent a structured markup format to write the books in. I don't know if he's literally saying he built a CMS to write this book or not, but he talks about it here. Uh, Bob writes, to produce the book version of this body of content, for example, I must follow the style guide and other production requirements that my publisher supplies to me. If I were creating only a book, I could take these guidelines for granted. I'd subconsciously assume that a reader is turning pages and I'd simply follow the formatting and structure rules supplied to me. All in all, I'd not pay much conscious attention to context. I'm not, however, creating only a book. As I must, given my subject matter, I'm actually creating a content management system that can publish all or parts of the same body of content as a book, on a website, as email messages, training materials, white papers, and so on. To take the CMS approach, I can't afford to lapse into unconsciousness about the context of various publications. Rather, I must be very conscious of and explicitly account for the requirements of the various contexts in which my content may be used. Uh, And then further down, he says, uh, make no mistake, accounting for context is much harder than ignoring it. On the other hand, when you go beyond a certain volume of information and publications, recasting your content by hand is more work than setting up a CMS that ensures your various contexts are all as well served as possible. This section resonates with me quite a bit because especially lately, I've been doing a lot of multi-channel publishing. I just finished writing a book with my friend, Corey Vilhauer. It's called The Web Project Guide. And we have written this book uh, to publish into three different contexts. Uh, The first one is a website. And uh, the second two are both PDFs. But we've learned that there's a difference of a PDF for print and then a PDF for digital. If you have a PDF that you intend somebody to read digitally, then you can insert hyperlinks. Or if you have a PDF that's meant to be printed, you have to somehow codify those links so they print out. So we have at least three different contexts. And we found it's very, very hard. To account for all of them and to generate content in a format that works for all three of them multi-channel publishing we have this dream of separating content from presentation and that makes multi-channel publishing uh, so easy it it really doesn't because the source content sometimes just can't be cast easily into other context it ends up much harder than we originally thought it would be mm-hmm. next section is called creating context rules. What Bob's talking about is that when we combine content and context or content and presentation, we want some rules to drive how that presentation looks. And uh, so Bob writes, uh, to mix and match content automatically, you must somehow reduce the complex relationship of content and context to a simple set of rules. You can then turn the rules into a program that a computer can understand and run. In fact, programming rules about context is the easy part compared to the effort it takes to understand your context well enough to think up the rules. One of the reasons creating context rules is hard is that no standard set of rules exists to relate context to content. I don't believe that anyone can create a set of rules that state how context and content interact in general. Fortunately, you don't normally write general rules. Typically in a content management project, you must write rules governing the specific and limited rate relationships among the following. A small set of content elements, a small set of audience types, and a small set of publications where the audiences consume the content. Bob now goes into an example uh, about writing this book. He says the rules behind the naming of this work, for example, are fairly simple. Each publication type bears a different name. In the XSL programs I wrote to transform the content into various publications, I inserted the appropriate rule for whether to include or how to include certain types of content based on the type of publication I'm creating. Um, XSL, if you're not familiar with, is sort of a templating or transformation language for XML. Uh, XML 20 years ago was kind of the be-all and end-all of content management for whatever reason. I still love XML today. It has largely been replaced with JSON in terms of serialization, Um, but XML actually had an enormous ecosystem of programs behind it for uh, transformation. And so it was used heavily in content management back, certainly around the the turn of the century. Uh, Bob continues here about his concept of of the rules to generate different artifacts from this book. A more complex set of rules may create changes in the layout and content on a web page based on the user. For such rules, you begin by stating in plain English what you want to happen for each kind of user. A social services website, for example, may follow these rules. For contributors, oh, I'm sorry, it's a three-step three bulleted list here. For contributors, I want the pages to feel solid, professional, and contain a medium amount of content. For the staff, I want the pages to look fun and intriguing but contain the full content. For clients in need of service, the pages must look accessible and easy to use. They should contain a minimum of content. Uh, and then Bob says, next, you may want to specify the elements of the pages that the rules affect, driving the rules down to a level of specificity as follows. And he has a three-step bulleted list here. For contributors, use Banner 1, Navigation Scheme 1, Background 1, CSS Style Sheet 1, and Content Elements one, two, three, and 4. Uh, he doesn't say what those numbers refer to. He just means those are different discrete elements. Uh, the second bullet reads, for staff, use Banner 2, Navigation Scheme 2, Background 2, CSS stylesheet 2, and all the content elements. Uh, for clients, use Banner 3, Navigation Scheme 3, Background 3, CSS stylesheet 3, and the content elements 1 and 2 only. Uh, and then finally, you specify the programming level rules that implement the intention of the plain English and element level rules as follows. Uh, detect the referring domain and login status to determine the user type, 1, 2, or 3. Redirect to the appropriate template. And in the templates, include the banners, navigation areas, backgrounds, and style sheets by user type as specified in the CMS repository. Um, although intentionally simple, this example indicates that you must first understand the context that you want to create for your content, that you can then begin to reduce that understanding to a set of rules that programmers can implement to produce the appropriate context for your content and audiences. He concludes this section with, I said earlier in this chapter that you could just think just as well think of content management as context management. By now it should be evident that to be successful, a CMS must manage the surrounding context of the content as well as manage the content itself. The context must, context must always support and enhance the content that it surrounds. The trick to content management is, is to really know your content, its context or publications, and its users or audiences. If you know these three very well, the rules for how they relate follow naturally. If you prepare yourself to try, evaluate, and try again, your rules will continue to get better. Um, Bob, maybe in this entire book, certainly in this chapter and in this section, he's really talking about multi-channel publishing. We're going to publish content into more than one delivery channel. Um, this was always the promise of content management. And then of course we all got waylaid by the web and we just started making websites and not until mobile apps showed up. did we suddenly mobile apps and social media, I maintain were the two things that showed up where suddenly we're like, well, we need to start needing to push our content into other contexts or publications as well. And I think the point that Bob is really getting at in this section is you can't create your content in absence of an understanding about your contexts. You really need to know where your content is going to come out in order for you to design how your content needs to be created and stored. And this becomes especially problematic when you try to add channels later on. So let's say you have some content you're publishing as a web page and someone comes to you and say, hey, let's automatically push this into Twitter. Well, I mean, Twitter only takes 240, 280 characters, whatever. And so you have to cut that down. Well, if you haven't been doing that and you've created a thousand pieces of content and you haven't been creating like a short tweet style teaser, well, what do you do now? Okay, well, that's maybe resolvable. But then someone comes to you and says, hey, let's um, push this into Alexa or, um, or some kind of voice channel. Well, is it ready for voice? When you have to add a channel later on and reconfigure content that already exists, it becomes a problem. What you normally end up doing is kind of grandfathering all of that old content. So, okay, we're not going to push that into this channel. From this point forward, we're now going to create content as such that it can go into more than one channel. Uh, It gets very complicated. But what Bob's saying is here is create your content with your context in mind. If you can plan those contexts out in advance, you'll be in a much better position to create more reusable content, a point with which I wholeheartedly agree. The next section contains um, kind of a profound truth when you think about it. The, The section is entitled Content is Named Information. And Bob starts out, names provide simple, memorable, useful containers in which to collect and unify otherwise disparate pieces of information. You can look at content management as the art of adding names to information. And then he kind of repeats that a little further down. That's why I say that content and content management are no more than discovering successfully applying names to information. He gives a little background here. Names have always had a strange and powerful hold on us. To this day, many people refuse to speak the name of a disease lest they contract it. In the Jewish tradition, the name of God may not be spoken. In Native American cultures, a person's true name is crafted to speak a deep truth about him. This true name is never used lightly. In modern consumer culture, the power of the name runs through the phenomenon of brand identity, where a well-recognized name is valued above all else in a company's portfolio of assets. Finally, the mystique and power of law medicine and many other professions derive from the set of names in the form of professional jargon that each uses and that no one else understands. Why are names so powerful in human life? It is because names capture and contain a potentially vast amount of information in a simple to use form. In effect, names ties information, that is, they provide a small snippet that can stand in for the larger and less manageable whole chunk of information. So, uh, what Bob is saying here is that names are like sort of a very—they're sort of a placeholder. We can give something a name, and that's a placeholder for a much larger con concept. And what he does, he's he has a very large bulleted list here, which he introduces by saying, naming, in fact, lies behind all the major topics that I discuss in this work as the following list summarizes. And there's a bulleted list of like 10 items. Um, they're kind of long. I'll just summarize them. But the first item, he says, I discuss the notion of breaking information into discrete content types and then components. The way that you do this is to invent names for the various types of content that you plan to manage, and then create a set of individually named content components of that type. Okay, so if you have a news article, you may uh, form up a content for that uh, content model for that news article and add a bunch of properties to it and configure it a certain way and create a bunch of rules for it and then just put a name on it. And that name kind of stands in for the more complicated idea of a news article. Bob continues, I discuss metadata, which is no more than a set of names that you associate with components to help find, relate, and use them. I discuss a content domain, which is simply a name for the unorganized universe of information that you're trying to control. I discuss the hierarchy, which is no more than an outline of names on which to hang each of your components. I discuss indexes, which extract the significant names from your content and put them all in a well organized list. I discuss markup, which is a standardized system of naming that you can apply to content to make it more usable. I discussed the metatorial framework where you invent a system of names that you use throughout your system, I discuss content collection, which is the process by which you assign names to previously unnamed information. I discuss repositories in which you pull the names and make them accessible in a database or other management structure. I discuss publications, which are named subsets of the content that you control. I discuss workflow, which is a set of named processes for the flow of named content components between named preparation and delivery stages. I, I think what Bob's getting at here is the concept of organization is fundamentally about grouping things. Um, I'm not so much hung up on the idea of naming things as I'm hung up on the the idea of grouping things, which I think content management is about. It's about grouping-related things. We just happen to put names on them to name that group. So an interesting section. Again, it's entitled, Content is Named Information, and it's fundamentally about how content management is about naming or grouping things uh, together. The next section is called From Data to Wisdom, and it's a great section. I don't think I'm going to be able to do justice to it. But what Bob does is, is he takes a spectrum, right? Data is, is all the way on the left, and let's say wisdom is all the way on the right. And he talks about that transition from raw data to wisdom. And he starts under a subheading that says data is raw and discrete. He says data comes in snippets. Each snippet is complete unto itself and doesn't rely on its neighbors for its meaning. Each datum stands alone as one whole integer, string, bit, date, or what have you. Because they're discrete, you can disassociate each datum from the others, use it interchangeably with any other of the same type, and create any sort of complex processing routine that works on the data. Um, And then he has a heading that says data is non-discursive and out of context. And he starts off with an interesting paragraph, something I've never considered before. By design, data is too raw and fragmented to ever form the basis of a conversation. In fact, the whole point of data is to make information so raw and discreet that no conversation is necessary. What the situation means is that a datum has no life of its own. It's always an object, never a subject. The same qualities that make the datum easy to work with preclude it from ever being interesting in itself. So again, the number three, uh, if I were to come to you and walk up to you at a party and say, Hey, the number three, what could we possibly talk about? Um, nothing. That's just raw data. Now, if I were to say to you, I have three children, well, that, that's different. That's conversational. That's something we can have a conversation about. Um, he has a heading here, information is processed and continuous. Data, at least, has a natural meaning somewhere in the region where I've defined it, a definition on which most people can more or less agree. The word information on the other end has many meanings and no meaning at the same time. You can rightly call anything information, including data. Still, I'd like to try to nail this concept to a particular type of communication. As I said in chapter one, I take information to mean all the common forms of recorded communication that you find around you, writing, recorded sound, image, video, and animations. You can see right away that information is fundamentally more messy than data. Before you ever see a piece of information, someone's done a lot of work, someone's formed a mental image of a concept to communicate. The person uses creativity and intellect to craft words, sound, or images to suit the concept. Information doesn't naturally come in distinct little buckets, all displaying the same structure and behaving the same way. You can still put methodologies, processes, and procedures in place to handle information. As you see throughout the rest of this book, however, we are all just beginning to learn how. And as the heading says, information is discursive and full of context. To possess a piece of data, you simply must remember it. To possess a piece of information, you must interpret it in light of your current beliefs and knowledge information requires a web of unstated relationships a context to use data has these relationships stripped out some say the united states is a low context culture that is in the united states people use a lot of words and make relatively few assumptions about what the other person knows or understands before talking japan on the other hand is considered a high context culture where most people assume and know in certain terms that you're fully steeped in a deep understanding the smallest gesture ought to invoke from within you a world of associations and appropriate behaviors. But even in the United States, people spend a lifetime learning to hear what isn't said. In summary, information is fundamentally messier than data. It contains enough human qualities to make it hard to parse, obscure in its interpretation, and too complex to handle and use. Successfully working with it requires a different mentality and skill set. And then he moves on. So we've talked about data and we've talked about information and then he moves on to two even more vague concepts, knowledge and wisdom. And th- this is where it gets really kind of out on the edge here. Uh, he says, data are material facts. Information is matter of fact. Knowledge is matter of dispute and wisdom is non-material. Although both data and information have a face value, you must synthesize and extract knowledge and wisdom from a wealth of communication and direct experience knowledge happens within a domain i might know about cars information human nature or god wisdom on the other hand is knowledge that transcends domains wisdom isn't just a statement of fact as is data it's not a matter-of-fact statement as is information it's not a mental state of understanding as knowledge is Rather, it's an ultimately synthetic act where one expresses deep understanding simply and universally. Now, I have stripped out a lot of that chapter. He gets very, very deep into this, and it's interesting. But if you look at a scale from something that's super easy to manage, like the number three, through to some deep wisdom about the dynamics of raising three children, there's a huge spectrum in there. Um, that is easier to manage on one hand and much, much harder to manage on the other hand. And where do we fit? I mean, where does content fit in there? I've always kind of felt that content comes after information, but before knowledge. But this is a subject of wild dispute. And we are now 60 pages into this book. And and Bob is still talking about how we codify what is data and what is information and now what is knowledge and not as wisdom. And honestly, 20 years later, I'm not sure that we have any further answers. (music) Now, the final section of this book asks an important question, and that question is, why does text get all the attention? Bob writes, did you ever notice that when people, including me, talk about the promise and future of computers, they include sound, video, animation, and other fun stuff, but how do I ever only actually go into detail about text? Although tremendous growth has occurred in the amount and sophistication of electronic sound and images, our understanding of how to categorize and find them remains piddling at best, why is that? Why is it that it's so much easier to talk about text as content? useful, organized information, and so much harder to talk about other sorts of media in the same way. In this section, it has two subsections, but the point is, is that we communicate through language, and the heading of the first subsection literally is text is codified language, and Bob quotes from a book called the Breaking the Maya Code, where Michael Coe, who I assume is a linguistic uh, linguist of some kind, he writes... Writing is speech put in visible form in such a way that any user instructed in its conventions can reconstruct the vocal message. So text is codified language. We use language to communicate, and text really codifies that. So when we talk about rich media, there's kind of an extra step there. Because if I'm going to describe a picture to you, well, I have to first think about how I'm going to describe that in language and then write that down into text. Where I, I, I don't have to do that if it's just text to start with. Bob writes, to index a book, you scan it for important words and concepts, meaning names and categories. The words and concepts are usually explicit in the text. They are words and phrases that you can pull out and attach page numbers to. Of course, good indexers can pull out words and phrases that are implicit in the text, but even these terms are never far from the surface of the words. Now consider indexing a set of pictures. You would most likely invent a set of descriptive names and categories first and then apply them to the pictures. None of the words would be explicit in the pictures abstraction and interpretation would always be needed on your part to associate a picture with a word. Furthermore, your audience would have to have a basic understanding of keywording or you have to educate them about how the words you chose relate to picture quality. So essentially, when we're talking about rich media, we have to take an extra step to really get that rich media into text in order to organize it. I can't organize a picture, a set of pictures of bridges without writing down somewhere that these are pictures of bridges. In fact, some of the advances now in AI are that you can upload a picture and some like Azure, Microsoft Azure Cognitive Services will analyze that picture and it will tell you what's in that picture. Well, how does it tell you what's in that picture? In text sends you back a textual representation of that. Now, it could speak it to you in language. But to codify that and make it something that we can store and easily refer to, we put it in text. So at the end of the day, text is sort of the base format for everything. Language is really the base format of communication and text is just codified language. So this section was a very long explanation of that concept. So we come to the end of this uh, chapter, but before I leave, I just want to note there are no less than five sidebars in this chapter, and a couple of them go on for like two full pages. Uh, the first sidebar is called Context is Necessary Complexity, and it's by Bob. And uh, it's about how you need to consider your content in the context of how it's going to be presented. And you can't really separate those two things entirely. We want to think that we can, but um, it's hard to do. It's necessary complexity because the presentation of content is the entire point. And considering content completely apart from the presentation kind of misses the point that you have to eventually present it to somebody. Uh, The next sidebar is actually a guest sidebar. It's by Rita Warren, who was with Zia Content at the time. Uh, It's called Playing the Name Game, and that is about the importance of naming things in your content management projects and coming up with names that people can agree on. This goes back to Bob's section on how content management is just naming things. Um, There's another uh, guest sidebar by a man named Rex Stratton from Pacific Northwest Laboratories. He compares content management and data management. And his larger point in the sidebar is that content management is really a superset of data management, and it has a lot of the same disciplines as simple data management. Uh, the fourth sidebar is is about two full pages by Bob, and it's entitled, Can a Computer Ever Interpret the Way a Human Does? And I think this is interesting because it's a comparison of the way computers interpret things and how humans interpret things. And I think that 20 years later, this would take on a decidedly different slant given all the advances that we've had in AI and how computers are trying to mimic the human brain. And then the last sidebar is another two-page sidebar, and it's by Bob. Uh, it's called The Wisdom Web, and it's about um, humankind's, attempts to codify wisdom in things like astrology and tarot cards and, and how we're trying to come up with systems to codify wisdom, um, with more or less success. And so that's the end of this chapter. Um, so this chapter was uh, wide ranging. I mean, the, 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 title of the chapter again was, but what is content really? And so I think this was just kind of a catch up chapter for Bob to, um, cover a lot of things that didn't fit into the, Prior chapters. So this is chapter five. And interestingly, this ends part one of the book. Part one of the book was entitled What is Content? And what we've been doing now is answering kind of, I would say, larger metaphysical existential questions about the nature of content. But we're done with that now. And, uh, and the next part is called part two. And it is uh, six chapters, chapters six through 11. And that part is entitled What is Content Management? So we're going to get a little more specific now. So that's the end of chapter five. That's the end of part one. I have decided for part two, I'm going to get some new theme music. Uh, I like the theme music we have, but it's just time for a change. And so there'll be some new theme music for part two. I hope you look forward to that. And as always, uh, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.